Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. Uh, you can check us and other podcasts out at reformpodcast.com. Um, also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel and you have not yet subscribed to the channel, uh, hit the subscribe button and hit the bell to be notified of new videos. And with that, I'll turn it over to Sean to introduce our topic today. Yeah, today we'll be discussing open theism, and open theism is the uh, idea that God doesn't know the future in an absolute sense, not how we would define God knowing the future. The, uh, the future is not set, it's open, um, and that allows God to change and be free. Um, it's the exact antithesis, excuse me, antithesis of uh, classical biblical theism. Um, and I was listening to an open theist the other day, um, a clip where he was critiquing Mike Winger, um, because Mike Winger basically gave the definition of open theism as God is a good guesser. He's guessing at the future. And he was criticizing him for not having um, actually uh, gone to open theist uh, resources in order to find out what open theists say uh, about their doctrine or how they would find it. So in light of that, we're going to play a video by Chris Fisher uh, defining what open theism is. All right, pull this up here. This is God, or so we are told. A single point on a blank screen. Notice that the dot is alone. Simple. God, we are told, is pure simplicity. Simple is good. Complex is bad. Complexity causes change. Change destroys perfection. Add even one point, and now God has relationships. God is now dependent. God can now change. God can now degrade. God is no longer perfect. To remain perfect, God cannot have parts. God cannot be described. God cannot have relationships. God forever sits alone in a timeless void, indescribable, ineffable, alone. But this is the God of Greek philosophy, not the God of Israelite worship. Yahweh is the God of Israel. He is not alone as he sits with his heavenly council. He is not immutable as he creates, innovates, and learns from the world he created. He changes at every moment of every day. As he grieves over the world, shows mercy to his creation, and forgives. Although he has lived forever, he is not timeless, as he remembers the past and remains hopeful of the future. He watches the world from heaven. He tests the heart of man to learn about them. He eagerly awaits for them to worship him. He is filled with hurt and anger when they reject him. Like a jealous husband, Yahweh becomes emotionally devastated at religious infidelity. Yahweh is betrayed, hurt, laments, becomes vindictive, jaded, spiteful. He judges, he punishes, but ultimately strives for reconciliation. Yahweh is the God of the Bible, not the God of Greek philosophy, Yahweh, the living God. All right, so that's just a little snippet into what open theism is, and you can see that this is from uh, Chris Fisher. Uh, he wrote a book called God is Open, uh, essentially espousing these uh, doctrines and fleshing them out further. Um, but there are some interesting things that are noted in here 
Um, he talks about Greek philosophy and how the god of classical theism is essentially a god of Greek philosophy, and we have heard that essentially somewhere before, and we'll talk about a little bit about that later. Um, but open theism seems to take uh, anthropomorphic, what we would call anthropomorphic language, and says it's univocally being put back to God, that this, when the Bible talks about God repenting or God changing his mind, it really means that God is repenting and God is actually changing his mind like we do, right? There, there's a change going on there. Um, and God, as Sean said, God doesn't know the future. Um, and so his mindset would be similar to ours, right? Learning, gaining knowledge, understanding things as they happen. And notice Chris in here said that God is not timeless, right? He's essentially changing like we are a long time. He's in time like we are. Um, he's not outside of time, transcendent. There, there really is no transcendence. There's only imminence in, uh, in open theism, in imminence in a way that compromises God's eternality as Christians have historically understood. And another thing, too, he, he calls God Yahweh, um, or, you know, if you, if you use the KJV rendering Jehovah, but they, they're pointing to the same thing, that the Tetragrammaton, I am, um, from Exodus 3.14 primarily. He's using this concept of uh, God's covenant name, which referring to the I am would refer to God's aseity, his unchangeableness and who he is. God just exists as he is. There's no uh, future. There's no past for God. He just is. <clears throat> you know, it's, I find it kind of ironic that he's using um, that concept uh, to refer to God. But on his website, um, godisopen.com, he gives a, a very concise, but I think very helpful definition of what open theism is. And he uh, talks about open theism being a spectrum, but this is at least his definition. So, quote, God is free to do as he pleases. God can write new songs, create new relationships, and even change the future. This is the God that the Bible depicts, a God eternally interacting with his creation, reacting and moving, living and creating, planning and accomplishing all his goals. Open theism is the Christian doctrine that the future is not closed, but open because God is alive, eternally free, and inexhaustibly creative. Furthermore, the biblical open theism belief is that the Bible depicts God as God truly is. The God of the Bible is truly loving, powerful, righteous, faithful, vengeful, relational, and desperately beautiful, end quote. So we see these different attributes of God being flushed out here. And one thing that I think is important to keep in mind is where he says that open theism uh, belief is that the Bible depicts God as he truly is. So there's no analogical language that can be used of God in the open theistic worldview, um, at least according as, as espoused by Chris Fisher. But there's this univocal language, right? If the Bible says that God was sad, he literally was sad like we are. It's it's a one-to-one -one comparison, a one-to-one a univocal discussion. God repented. He really changed his mind. He really felt sorry because he made Saul king in 1 Samuel 15. That can be taken no other way. Um, so that's how uh, they're, they're taking the scriptures over literally. Um, instead of seeing 
uh, the scriptures is talking about God truly, but also in places where it's speaking of him in an anthropomorphic sense or an analogical sense, um, and seeing God as truly distinct from his creation, they see God essentially as being in the same category as his creation and functioning like his creation. Now, you want to add anything, Sean? Yeah, I wanted to discuss some of the uh, the terms in the video that he used about God. Uh, he said that God would, uh, could become jaded, vindictive, and spiteful. Mm. And hmm. it's, it's funny um that he's critiquing our position of being greek philosophy essentially uh derived from greek philosophy when honestly that god sounds more like zeus than it does the god of the bible <laughs> um yeah uh, and in terms of univocal language or not recognizing anthropomorphic language the bible doesn't even say that specifically that god is vengeful or or spiteful vindictive or jaded um, it, it really actually surprised me that he would use those words to describe God. Um, I guess that that's that's how he reads the Old Testament. Um, and um, when God becomes angry with uh, the the Israelites, um, yeah, no, I, I was I was taken aback by that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. That almost sounds like more of the the. <clears throat> what a progressive would say oh yeah that, god of the bible is just mean because yeah. spiteful is never used in a in a righteous way you don't have righteous spite spite no. is it is a malicious intention it's like it's a cruelty yeah. right yeah, so, yeah i even it's almost like he's portraying god as some kind of uh angry man in the sky kind of thing an angry god of the old testament yeah no, I even looked up the definitions of those three words just to make sure like I wasn't missing something. And specifically, spiteful means showing or caused by malice. And yeah. malice is not a not a good thing. God might bring evil upon um, those who deserve it. Um, we know that from the Bible, but it's it's weird to be saying that he's he's basically being malicious. I would not ever use that yeah. that terminology in regards to God. God is not malicious. He might bring evil upon those that deserve it, but he himself is not malicious. I yeah, and all of the punishments that he... Oh, I'm sorry, Sean. Oh, no. Um, and all the... When he's punishing wicked nations, it's not because of malicious. It's because he's righteously judging them. It's flowing from his uh, his just, uh, righteous anger, as you could say. It's, it's not malicious in any way. So... There seems to be some hint of his anthropology as it relates to man. He probably doesn't have a high view of uh, sin in man. Um, clearly rejects Calvinism. If you look on other places on his site there, he's not friendly to Calvinism. So uh, it would not surprise me if he has a very high view of man and a very low view of sin in God's work in man's salvation. Um, so I think we're seeing a little bit of that there. But yeah, that that's interesting. I didn't pick up on that um, in listening to that. And that's really what you have to do when you listen to guys like this. It's like, okay, what are they saying and what are they not saying and what type of language is being used? As that gives a hint as to what other things, as you start to unpack it, what other things are they um, trying to communicate here uh, that they might not be saying expressly? All right. So there are some, you know, we, we're already talking about some issues with open theism, but I want to have us go into a little bit more um, a different 
things that are uh, more expressly laid out in open theism. Um, one of the issues is that God learns. Okay, we we already read that from the quote, and that was made pretty clear in the video that God doesn't know the future, right? God doesn't know what's going to happen. God is not uh, omniscient, essentially. God is not omniscient. God does not know all things. And this is the doctrine that God knows everything, past, present, future, everything that is uh, going to happen, or even everything that could be, right? God knows all things. That is the classical doctrine of, and biblical doctrine of omniscience. Uh, and we see this uh, in different places in Scripture, um, Romans 11, 34 through 36, uh, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Excuse me. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So Paul is uh, talking here about God's knowledge and his wisdom and essentially asking these rhetorical questions, right? Who has taught God? And the question is nobody, or the answer is nobody. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Now, this is to to really, uh, I think, shut down any kind of dissent against God's um, omniscience. Um, and then he finishes off in verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things, right? All things come from God. Uh, and that would imply that God is the supreme being, right? He is, there's nobody to be compared to him, as we'll see <clears throat> just a little bit in Isaiah. God is unique, and he is supreme. And because of that, he can't learn anything from anybody else. He already has all the knowledge that he needs by virtue of who he is. And God's knowledge is one with himself. Um, and so God knows all things. He is a supreme being. No one can teach him. No one has taught him. He just is. He is the unique God. Um, so we see very clearly there that uh, God's omniscience. First uh, John three twenty, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And this isn't just talking about knows all things in our heart. This is because God knows all things. He's greater than our heart and He knows our intentions. So here's John. Um, in talking about the proofs of what it means to be a Christian, right? Um, talking about what it what a true believer looks like, and he's talking about um, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. He knows what our hearts contain, um, and we can have peace um, in knowing what He has done for us. And finally, Isaiah forty thirteen through fourteen says, "Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has taught Him?" With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Again, all these rhetorical questions, right? It's it's not meant to really be a question, but meant to spark a rhetorical answer. The question is no one, or the answer is no one. Nobody has taught him the paths of justice or taught him anything. And I think that's kind of, Paul is echoing this concept in, in Romans 11. Uh, anything you want to add, Sean? Um, I think I'll have more to say about the next section, but I will just say in passing that um, there are obviously open theists have their proof texts to um, mm -hmm. to uh, attempt to prove that God does learn from his uh, creatures, and we'll be, we'll be dealing with open theist proof texts at the end of the episode. 
Uh, we're going through the positive case for our, our position now, and then we'll we'll deal with the open uh, theist proof text later. Yeah, this is similar to how we um, did the Jeff Johnson episode where we laid out the positive case of what the doctrines were we were dealing with, and then we got into the negative. And I mm -hmm. think that's a helpful way to uh, discuss yeah. these things. Honestly, that's that's the way that you should should argue with someone. Um, it's not enough to go through and just refute all their positions uh, or are the are the proof texts or explain what they mean. You have to be if you're if you're trying to interpret the Bible, you want to interpret the Bible in light of things. So if you establish your doctrine and mm -hmm. then go to other passages, then you can explain why the passages don't mean what the person is saying that they mean. Um, exactly. If you, just, if you just go to the passage itself, especially if it's an ambiguous passage, which um, I think most open, well, I think probably all open theist uh, proof texts fall into the category of you could take it if it was just an isolation in an open theist way, but I don't think it should be taken that way in light of the rest of scripture. Right. Yep. That's exactly right. It, if we see these things in light of the positive uh, one, it helps us to know what the positive is first, but then it also helps us to see the error in light of what we already know. So yeah, if we just refute the error, you might not actually get to the overall, what is the position that you're actually trying to establish instead of just dealing with one-off um, errors. So, yep. All right. The, another problem that we see, you know, God isn't, God is learning, right? He's gaining knowledge because he doesn't know the future. And then that's really leads us into the next section. God doesn't know the future and the future is not set, right? Those are, I think this is one of the most uh, glaring errors in open theism. Is it not only is this tied to God's omniscience, but this has impacts for, the decree of God as well, um, that God did not clearly didn't decree anything to come to pass, or at least there were plenty of things that, or most things were not decreed and God just doesn't really know what's going to happen. And if God decreed it, he really doesn't have any power to do anything about it because it could change, right? It could change. Um, but we see very clearly from scripture, this sovereignty, uh, this concept of God's sovereignty working in providence but also God decreeing what is going to happen in the future. Um, we see this, I think Isaiah, and as I was studying for this, I was like getting excited reading Isaiah because it was, there was so much here that is so rich and God is just shooting down any kind of opposition um, in the mind of the Israelites that might come up uh, and comparing himself. Look, look, here's idols over here. Look what they can do. I am the only God of the universe. I am the only God that exists. There is no God besides me. And anyone else who believes in any idols is stupid and foolish. So it, it's really this contrast that God is bringing out here in laying out his decree that he is sovereignly and in control of these things. Um, Isaiah 40, 7 through 8. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are not, uh, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Um, now, when we're talking about God's word laying out, we're obviously scripture would be part of that, but I think this can also be talking about God's decree. When God spoke that something was going to happen, um, it's going to stand forever, right? It's going to stand forever. So if God's word stands forever, 
this does not comport with the idea that the future can change because if God has decreed that something will happen, it's going to happen um, or God's word would change, right? Um, if we're talking about Jesus coming and dying for our sins and God swearing by himself that it's going to happen, as we see in, in Hebrew sex, then it's it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. The word of God does not change, and it's grounded, in this case, in himself. Uh, so we, we have to be very careful when we're using these things. Again, this is why having a well-rounded hermeneutic of understanding the scriptures as a whole, not just yanking out um, texts here and there to back up a position, but seeing this in light of the broader revelation of scripture. You know, we're seeing this in the broader revelation of uh, the scripture saying that God doesn't change. Okay, so how do we interpret this in light of passages like that, that or even other passages that uh, seem to imply God changes his mind? You know, we, we have to keep all of these pieces in play as we're going through and talking about the scriptures. Um, there's also another problem if, uh, with regards to God knowing the future. Um, if God knows everything, right, that would have to include the future. So if it, this again goes, goes back to God's omniscience, if you deny God doesn't know the future or the future is not set, then God doesn't know all things and he has to learn. So I think this is important because it shows that these doctrines are tied inseparably together. If you if you throw one doctrine out, you're inevitably going to affect the other doctrines. Now, you might hold to different ones inconsistently, but you're going to um, inevitably affect those doctrines. So if God knows that something is going to happen, then it must come to pass, right? Or he doesn't really know that it will happen, um, but only know it as it's already happened, right? So this would really be the concept of the open theists or um, are trying to push. So if we're to hold omniscience truly, then God must know uh, the future. He must know the future. And this is what we actually, we this is the line of thinking that we brought against Leighton Flowers and Eric Hernandez when we had them on the show, because uh, Eric Hernandez wanted to push Molinism. And I think Leighton was going that way too. But, um, it, you know, if you're going to say that God is fully knowing of all things, but then the future isn't, you know, it, you have true, truly free creatures, uh, then you're going to run into issues like this. Uh, Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can pro proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid, for I have not told you from that time. Oh, have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So God is saying, I, there's no other God for me. I'm the only one who can decree, right? This is in my nature to decree. No one else can do this. And the people of Israel were witnesses to God's work in this way. Um, and so God is really just reminding them of who he is and that he is the one who decrees all that comes to pass. And then finally, this is a more famous passage, Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Uh, remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Now, this is not just talking about what, uh, whatever the Lord is. I think it's Babylon captivity that he's um, predicting in this in this passage. God is saying that this is who he is. He, he even uses examples outside of what he's talking about immediately, talking about calling a bird of prey from the east and a man to execute my counsel from somewhere else. God is just saying, this is what I do. I, I work all these things out. I decree them and I ensure that they happen. Even something as simple as a bird flying um, from a, a far place. God is in control and, and has decreed that to come to pass. And one thing I want to point out in verse 10, uh, God says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. See, op open theists want to say that the future is not set. It's open and it can change. And God doesn't know it. But clearly, God is God doesn't just say things that have happened. I've you know I've dealt with or I've decreed or I've worked out. But things that are haven't even happened yet, I've decreed them, and I'm going to make sure that they happen. So God knows what is coming. God knows what is going to take place before it even takes place in time. So this is uh, very much against the open theistic concept of God's knowledge and His um, decree. And Sean, you wanted to add more to this as well. Yeah, um, I will note for specifically um, Chris Fisher, he does say God knows the future. But what he means by that is um, uh, more akin to God is fairly certain about the future. And the example he gave, uh, this video was a, a couple years old, I believe, because he was talking about um, the Trump uh, impeachment and saying how he knew that Trump wasn't going to be impeached. Um, and as it turned out, he was, he was entirely correct. Uh, Trump was not impeached uh, or not removed from office. What, uh, whichever the, the correct term is the point being Trump was not removed from office. Um, but it's, it's problematic to compare yourself, your knowledge to God's knowledge. And in fact, um, God condemns this, this sort of thinking um, James and James uh, chapter four, verse starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your mm. life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Mm -hmm. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it's it's problematic to say, oh, well, God is like me and I know the future. When God specifically says you do not know the future and it becomes a form of arrogance to be to be living that way, um, living with such confidence. And the second thing is um, it is really it's really lowering God uh, to to it's making him creaturely that. Mm -hmm. uh, oh well of course god god's exactly like me in in my knowledge uh whereas we should be thinking not in that way we should be thinking okay what is the bible said uh and the bible says that god is is different than us so we should be trying to think about god in the sense of um 
how the Bible presents them, not looking to ourselves. I will use analogies based off of, of humanity if I think it's helpful, but that's not necessarily the first place you want to go to in order to, to know about um, how God is. Um, just a couple other proof texts real quick um, for the fact that God knows the future in the sense that we mean it. Um, Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. Uh, but, uh, and this is uh, God speaking. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come to pass, does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And then I didn't include it, but elsewhere it says that uh, that person can be put to death for being a false prophet. So the future is so certain to God that he can stake his reputation on it, saying that, oh, that prophet came from me or that prophet didn't come from me because what he said did not come to pass. The future is mm. that certain that people can be uh, put to put to death for, for um, failing to um, for failing to prophesy correctly. Cause that means that prophecy did not come from Jehovah. Um, Psalm 31, 39 verse 16, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book, they are all written the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. So here the psalmist is saying that before I was formed, before I was fashioned, God is the one fashioning and uh, all the th all my days that are going to happen has already been written in God's book. So this is before the, the thing has happened that uh, my life or uh, whoever's reading this, their life has already been um, determined. So clearly God knows the future and honestly is determining it. Uh, we see here. And then uh, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God is preparing stuff for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, if God isn't in control of the future, then he's preparing things that may not come to pass. And then he has to change and prepare new things or uh, perhaps his plan is totally wrecked. It's impossible to know. Uh, the last thing I will say on this topic is that some open theists, the way they um, basically speak about God uh, to maintain saying like, oh, you know, we believe God is omniscient, is that they say that, well, the future doesn't exist yet. And to be omniscient really means to know everything that currently is. So God knows everything. The future doesn't exist yet. Once the future happens, then God will know it. And thus he is he's omniscient. And A, that's really changing the definition of the word omniscient um, from its historical meaning. And B, it just isn't what we see uh, from, from the Bible. Um, to be omniscient is, not that the Bible uses the word omniscient, but we see that God's omniscience includes knowledge of the future. Yeah, and that really is just kind of an, um, you're, you're just... <clears throat> quantifying what omniscience means they're basically just saying omniscience is only in the present he knows all things now but mm -hmm. he doesn't know all things in the future yeah it's redefining oh. omniscience 
you still haven't solved the problem of God learning. So mm-hmm. how that really comports with omniscience doesn't really make any sense. Doesn't make any sense at all because God is still gaining knowledge that he didn't have before. Um, it also, yeah. it, it forces God to be in time. Because Correct. From our perspective and from the Bible's perspective, God is outside time, right? Correct. So in order for God to not know the future because the future hasn't happened yet, that means God is in time. And then you're yep. left with questions like, well, where did time come from? And if uh, if time is eternal, how did we get to the point where we are now? Because there was inf- an infinite amount of time before us. It doesn't it it, it, it creates um, quite a few problems. So. Yeah. And going back to your point, uh, when Chris Fisher talked about Donald Trump's impeachment or, or his um, removal from office or whatever it was, um, just because you might have been right about something that came to pass does not mean you knew it was going to happen. There's a difference in uh, maybe having an understanding, you know, what you thought was going to happen did come to pass, but because of the potential and the uncertainty that it could not happen, that you really didn't know it was going to happen. There's a difference in knowing something is certainly going to happen and then just guessing really well. Um, that is that is not the same thing as having certainty about the future. And we're talking about God having certainty about the future um, and, and what is going to come to pass, not some good guesser or uh, that he just, he was like, yeah, Donald Trump is going gonna, is gonna to not be impeached and then, it happens and oh god just he happened to know the future no it's a certainty that it will come to pass it has to be exactly um because of the reasons we talk god is the supreme being he has all knowledge and he cannot uh, have anyone be uh be beholden anyone outside of himself and that actually brings us to our next point here um it requires god to be beholden to someone or something outside of himself because if god is gaining knowledge in this case from his creation right because god is in time he's like chris said he's changing every moment of every day right he's learning he's constantly moving just like in uh, we do in time um so god is now beholden excuse me beholden to something outside of himself his creation right he must depend on time he must depend on his creation to give him knowledge he must essentially depending on his creation to exist. Um, and we would see this as extremely problematic. Um, Isaiah 43, 12 through 13, I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work and who will reverse it. God, again, tying these principles of what he does his works back to himself i am the unique god there is no one besides me and because of that who can stay my hand who can who can uh hold me back when i say i'm going to do something or when i work um so god is not beholden to anyone or anything outside of himself because of who he is as the unique god um daniel 435 For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, the context here, this is Nebuchadnezzar coming out of his crazed animal state. If you recall, he 
he, in his pride, said, look, basically, look what I made. Look at the kingdoms I made without getting giving any attribution to God for uh, what he did, in spite of what God had done for Nebuchadnezzar and showed him already through you know, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He continued to be arrogant. Um, and so God humbled him by making him like an animal, and he lived like an animal. But then his sense returned to him, right? And it was, it, the, the scriptures actually say that at the same time that he was saying these things, he's, his mind returned to him and he was regaining all these things, showing clearly that what he was saying was true and that God was blessing him for acknowledging who God was and what he does. God is supreme. God is sovereign. No one can stay his hand saying, what have you done? God is not beholden to anyone or anything outside of himself. And so open theism clearly denies this concept uh, and clearly sees um, God as really just another creature, another creature in creation. Somehow he made the world, but somehow he's still part of the world. Um, that mystery will never be solved in open theism. I can tell you that um, in this uh, and this means that God changes, right? God changes. God is like us. Uh, he is now uh, one of us, but Malachi 3, 6, uh, for I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are consumed, O sons of Jacob. And the, the covenant name Yahweh is invoked here, uh, the Tetragrammaton. So God is referring to, his, he's referring to his Asse nature. I do not change. This is who I am. And because of that, you're not consumed. God keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises. He will not destroy Israel. Um, and again, that doesn't exactly comport with open theism because sometime down in the future, God could destroy Israel because the future is not set. But God does not change, and therefore he keeps his covenant with his people. Now, anything you want to add to that, Sean? Uh, not for that section, no. Okay. Uh, and finally, we touched on this a little bit already, but God is like man, right? God is like man, in according to open theists. Um, and they might not say this expressly, but this is the natural conclusion of their arguments. If God can move a long time, if God can change at every moment, every day, have emotions like we do, then God is essentially like a man. God is creature, right? It's in the nature of a creature to change, and it's in the nature of, a God, of God to be immutable. Um, Isaiah 40, 18 to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare him? And in context here, there is the um, the author is contrasting the nations to God. The nations are as a drop in a bucket; they're worthless, right? So God is comparing His creation, essentially, and then in more specifically the nations to God. They're nothing as compared to Him, and no one can be compared to Him. Um, so to liken God like us in all these different ways is to violate this principle that God is laying out here in Isaiah 40. Again, we see this principle, Isaiah 40, 25, to whom will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. And again, there's a contrast here between creation and in context in creation and God. He is sovereign. He's the creator. Men are creatures with no power whatsoever and autonomy. Um, and he is ruling, and he does as he pleases with his creatures. God is incomparable. It makes him unique. And that's why the creature-creator distinction must be upheld. First uh, Samuel 15, 29, And also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent, for he is not a man that he should 
relent. So Samuel is clearly saying that he's not a man. God is not man at all. And because of that, he's not going to act like a man. He's going to act um, in accordance with his own nature. Uh, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Again, God is God is not a man. God doesn't lie. God doesn't change. God keeps his word. That's the point here. And I should have added um, from John 4, uh, where the scripture said, God is spirit, and those who must worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God's nature is spirit, right? God is not a man. As the catechism says, God is spirit, and he does not have a body like men. Um, and if we keep those categories intact, it will help us to avoid these errors. But if we want to bring God down to our level and posit human attributes to God, then we are going to fall into these errors. We inevitably will. And this is what man does in order to make God like us. He's more understandable, more relatable, more um, easier to grasp and morph if he's like us. But when you have the infinite God who is unique, who is not like us in any way, uh, then we have um, we have more work cut out for us in terms of speaking of him rightly and understanding him as much as humanly possible. Um, but we have to be very careful not to put human attributes to God um, or we're going to fall into these errors. Anything else, Sean, you want to add to that? Yeah. Um some people might have been surprised that I used the uh, the um, the idea that uh, the open theist God is closer to Zeus than the, the God of the Bible. But I think this really does sort of uh, show it. Uh, the the Greek pantheon, or they were essentially just big men with with superpowers, right? Um, they were um, they had all the human flaws uh, that uh, we do. Just it was on a more exaggerated level. They were um, vengeful. They were spiteful like we are. They became jaded like uh, we are or we can become. Um, it, it really is transforming the God of the Bible into more the image of man. Mm -hmm. um, God is, we are made in God's image. God is not made in our image. And that's an important, it's important to keep that correctly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you broke up there, Sean. I don't know if you're you still oh, there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I think I got the last part there. Yeah. Um, and what's funny is there are um, different gods that are made into superheroes. <laughs> you look at <laughs> Thor, yeah. and and even um, in the Wonder Woman story, Zeus is in that in that universe and is part of the the story leading to her origin. You know, so there is these concepts of um, I think in these superhero stories, we want some, we want supreme beings and we want powerful beings that protect us, but they're ultimately in, in a lot of ways, like we are, and they're subject to frailties and, and faults and they're weak and they all have weaknesses in some way. Um, but we don't serve a God who has weaknesses and is frail and, and beholden to things outside of himself. He's the creator and sustainer and, and, uh, causes all things to come to pass and, and ensures that his will is carried out. And that is uh, that is a huge comfort. We don't have to we're in all these gods, too. You know, they're 
you look at uh, some of these these stories and they're they're fighting each other, they're stabbing each other in the back, they're um, they're just constantly bickering about something. They're as corrupt as corrupt can be. Um, we don't have a God who does that. We have a God who is perfectly just, and we can one hundred percent rely on for His Word and His truth to come to pass. Um, and that God cares for His people, but doesn't compromise on His justice either. So it's it's very it's it's a wonderful thing to see that um, and just see how foolish it is to follow these other false gods. Um, there's nothing to be found there. Um, and, and that's the danger, I think, that we find in this. You've created an idol if you have if you embrace open theism, you have created an idol. Um, and I think uh, there are those even in the the reformed community who have posited human attributes to god you know we we've talked about this um to some extent when we critique jeff johnson's book on uh the failure of natural theology that was his his book that we critiqued and you know he's positing movement to god um and more particularly and, and what do we read up there with with chris fisher he says god god moves right movement is is just part of who god is part of what he does um, so when you start positing human attributes to God, you are in essence a semi-open theist. Um, and I, I say semi because I want to be careful. These people who do this are not maybe doing so not intentionally. Um, obviously, they wouldn't call themselves open theists. Um, but you're taking on open theistic concepts and putting them uh, back to God. And as soon as you do that, you're going down that road to full open theism. We must keep God as unique from his creation in every way. We must keep God um, as distinct from his creation. We have to do that. As soon as we, well, God can move. God can really have emotions. You've introduced open theism into your doctrine of God. Um, now, I'm thankful for these guys like Jeff Johnson who would not go down this road fully. Um, but, I mean, they are... They are pushing some of these things, and it is uh, a form of open theism. And I'm, you know, that that might get people with pitchforks and knives coming after me, um, but I think we can demonstrate that very clearly based on um, the the definitions of open theism. And then you're already positing concepts from that are unique to open theism back to God. Um, you have now introduced that concept into God, um, and clearly they wouldn't do so saying I'm an open theist. Um, but you are positing these things to God, and it's it's dangerous. Um, and you're making God into your own image at that point. You have to be very, very careful about that. But the, the God of open theism can't bring us any kind of peace, can't bring us any kind of rest. At one moment, you know, the, the atonement might apply one day, but since the future can change, you know, we might not make it to heaven the next day. Who knows? I mean, it, the future is open, right? That they expressly say that. I, I don't understand how any of them can have any confidence uh, in the cross, in salvation, um, with who Jesus is, if you have this concept that the, the future is really open and it can change. It can morph at any moment. Um, we have a promise, Hebrews 6, 13 through 14, that says God swore by himself that uh, we would be saved, that these things would happen, and that he swore by himself, and I think this was in 
uh, relation to the problem, the promise made with Abraham, right? And this is the the Abraham covenant. Um, remember, there's two aspects of that covenant. We talked about this last week, but the spiritual aspect of the covenant that there would be um, salvation and peace through Jesus Christ um, is ultimately what that is referring to. And God swore by himself. And as we've already discussed, God's nature is unchanging. So if God swears by himself that this is going to happen, and in Hebrews 6 even says that there was nobody higher, no one greater to swear by, right? Because God is the, God is the greatest being. So he's swearing by his unchanging nature. And so uh, we have that rest, that this will not change. This is a promise that will remain. Um, but the open theist does not have that rest, does not have that peace. They might think they do, but they, uh, they can't really claim that as their own um, because, uh, because the future is not really set. God is not sovereign. God is not sovereign and cannot ensure that will come to pass. Uh, anything else to add, Sean, before we look at some of their proof texts? Yeah. Uh, Romans 8.28 to me is a, an especially precious uh, mm. um, scripture, yep. uh, especially when you're going through hard times. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So all things, no matter what you're going to, are going to work out for good even if it does not seem that way you don't know how that's that's possible all things are going to work out for good um and from the open theist perspective i don't see how they can affirm those those words um something like the fall right uh they posit that the fall happened um not because it was predestined um for the glory of god but that um that was accidental on god's part or maybe not accidental mm -hmm. but that it was it was unintentional um so if something as 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 bad as the fall can happen and not be for a good purpose um because you can't have a purpose if it wasn't if it wasn't predestined um mm -hmm. uh if something is as terrible as the fall can happen how, how could you possibly say oh yes all things will work out for good for me i i I don't think it's, I, I see no way to, to reconcile those two concepts. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no, yeah. The passages like that are meaningless. <clears throat> also, I had Lamentations 3, 23 through 24 written down, which is along the lines of Romans 8, 28, right? Uh, Though the Lord's mercies, or th I'm sorry, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. So that same hope that we have in Romans 8, 28 is found here in Lamentations 3. Um, and we can't speak of God's great faithfulness to his people, really. Uh, maybe after the fact, we can look back and say, well, yeah, look, great is the faithfulness of God to us. But that's not what is being said here. It's... Uh, God's faithfulness is continuous and his compassions fail not and they're new every morning. So that future, again, it's funny that these passages seem to cover not only what had happened so they can look back and see how God preserved them, but also, hey, this is going to keep happening. It's covering the past, present and future. Uh, there's no ambiguity here as to, you know, oh, well, you know, great. Sure, God was faithful back then. You know, he rescued the Israelites from 
Egypt. He brought them through Canaan. He wiped out all the nations for them. Um, but no, his compassions, they continue um, to sustain. And we can therefore say that we hope in him. And the same with Romans 8, 28. We can rest in that God has a plan and a purpose even in difficult times um, because his compassions fail not, because it's grounded in his purpose and in his decree. And that is not something the open theists can claim. They might do so inconsistently, but they cannot claim that um, if they want to hold to their position. I just can't. So, Sean, do you want to start us off with the, the proof texts from their position? Yeah. Yeah, so these are um, just a, a couple of proof texts. We're not going to um, exhaustively go through all of them, obviously. But hopefully this will give a, a good idea of the categories of proof texts that you'll find, because a mm -hmm. lot of them, they do have similar themes. So the first one um, is going to be Genesis 3, 9 through 11. Then the Lord God set, called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? So on the surface, at the very least, it appears that God doesn't know something that's that's just happened, right? Um, yep. And this is this is a, a, a type of proof text we'll see being used a lot, but um, they'll quote something where it seems like God doesn't know something. And I would argue that um, uh, God is, he's, he's, well, uh, let me, let me uh, go to a, a text I think will show uh, a little bit more light on it. It's from the very next chapter, uh, Genesis 4. Um, this is uh, after Cain has murdered his brother. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cried out to me from the ground. Uh, cries out to me from the ground, excuse me. Um, so here, God is asking Cain a question. And it's not because he doesn't know, but he's he's still asking him the question. And uh, I was I was hosting a Bible study on this, this uh, chapter. One of the, the Bible study participants pointed out that he does this sort of thing with his children, right? He already knows his mm -hmm. child has done something wrong. But when he asks, hey, do you do this, he's one child to confess, right? Mm -hmm. Now, from God's perspective, he already knows that Cain will not confess, but he still have, has given him the opportunity to do so by asking uh, by asking him, or in the case of um, of Adam, He's still giving him the opportunity to confess. Um, so it's not necessarily that God is lying or trying to deceive, but this is just something we, we as humans do, and I'll use this comparison human back to God, um, that this is just a way that we speak in order to, to accomplish something. It's not that we're purposely trying to deceive and say, oh, that we don't know, but it's just this is, this is how we communicate. And God communicating to humans, is communicating to us in a way that we understand. I uh, don't know if you had any additional comments about that, Dan. Um, yeah, the, I was actually going to go along those lines with regards to how a parent talks to a kid. You know, you say um, to, you know exactly what a kid did, but you say, Tom, you know, I'm going to use my son as an example, Thomas. Uh, Thomas, uh, 
why did you do that? Or, or what did you do? You know what they did, but you're trying to elicit a response. You want them to confess or you want them to, um, to admit to the wrong and really think about what they did. Right. You're not trying, you're, you're not trying to say, I really don't know what you did. It's, it's more of an interrogation tactic to get them to say something or elicit a response. So I, I think that's what we see. And I think the, the issue with Cain is a perfect example that clearly God knew. And, and by the fact that he's saying that Abel's um, blood is crying up from the, from the ground, uh, he knew what happened to Abel, but he wants Cain to respond and, and confess to his sin of murder. Right. It, it's more like a, a judge looking at a defendant, you know, and trying to get them to confess to the crime or plea to the crime. So, yeah, but again, this goes back to what is your hermeneutic? They, they just, like Chris said, the Bible speaks of God as he truly is, right? So he's, if he says, where are you? Well, okay, God must not know here. Look, I mean, this is, even though, even on simple human terms, this does not necessarily mean that they doesn't know. It could just be an interrogation tactic. Um, but that's what's assumed in their hermeneutic. Yeah, a lot of the hermeneutic is based on um, reasoning from implication, and that that is right. important. I don't want to I don't oh, want to yeah. say that everything is explicitly laid out in the Bible, and you should right. ever understand. We spent a things. lot of time talking about that. <laughs> yeah, impl implication is definitely definitely important, yep. but implication is never a solid ground compared to something that's stated directly. And hopefully, as we've gone right. through the text, we we believe support our that um that's these are direct statements you can recognize this is solid ground to then go to the the um places where it's at best implied uh the open theist position that that's not a good way to understand the bible um there's the there's the uh, principle of hermeneutics clear interprets unclear um, we want to go to the clear passages to establish a yep. doctrine not necessarily the unclear and in in this case I think most of these, um, all of these uh, proof texts that we'll, we'll talk about are definitely at best in the unclear, um, the unclear category. Now I see uh, you've got, um, where is it? Uh, something from Jeremiah. Did you want to do Dan? Sure. Yeah. I thought about this. Um, it was from, uh, I can't. I think it might have been from James White a while back when he had talked about open theism. That this might have been brought up by him as a proof text that open theists use. And I think he might have been talking about this in in late with regards to Leighton Flowers, because Leighton Flowers has used this passage um, as it relates to um, God's decree in in evil. In Jeremiah nineteen five, they have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Um, so this would be a perfect uh, open theist proof text that God did not, you know, have any concept of this in his mind um, because it was evil. Right. But we, we have to understand this is very clearly talking about uh, with regards to God's prescriptive will not that God had a lapse in memory and that he, this, he had no idea what was going on. Um, this is absolute silliness if, if you go down that road. Clearly the context that I did not command nor speak, nor did it enter my mind. This is talking about God's prescription in terms of his law. He didn't command or speak it. 
it wasn't something that came into his mind that was that God was directing them towards with regards to um, with regards to saying this is okay. And actually, if you read later on in the chapter, you'll see very clearly that God was the one who caused these things to happen, the, the calamity that came um, later. Uh, so clearly he knew what was going on. Um, so just, again, this is the hermeneutic they're using. It must speak of God univocally. So it did not enter his mind. It literally, he had a lapse of memory at the very least. Um, but that, I think, from the context is clearly not the case. Yeah, I, I I don't remember where exactly it is in the uh, it's it's somewhere in the the Pentateuch. It might be uh, Deuteronomy, but God specifically says, "Don't follow the practices of the nations that you're going to uh, you're going to dispossess out of the land of Israel." And I want to say He even explicitly mentions the fact that they're burning their sons uh, to uh two foreign gods i can't remember if that's exactly true but i want to say that that's the that's even the context of that um but regardless god is aware of what they're doing in the land and telling the israelites don't do this You're right so even <laughs> even the open theist has to in some sense say okay well the thought has entered god's mind so right when you recognize okay so he's not speaking um it, uh it entered in my mind in like every single sense of the word then you leave room open to under all right how does this what is god actually trying to get across here as opposed to oh well it said it didn't enter his mind therefore it didn't enter into his mind uh we have to understand these things in light of all the scripture um correct and just because it says something doesn't mean that every single possible um way that could be interpreted we have to use that um we have to filter how we interpret things in light of other scriptures yep then it's really, again, comes down to a hermeneutical exercise. You know, if you can unmantle the faulty hermeneutics, you've unmantled the entire system that it's in, inseparably tied to. So. Yeah. All right. So moving on, Genesis uh, 6, 5 through 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So this is taken to imply some sort of uh, absolute change in God um, rather than recognizing that um, God, it, 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 it's, a, it's describing a true reality, but not necessarily in the way that open theists take it, um, that God has um, completely changed. But we're recognizing that um the actions of man do grieve God in a sense that it's appropriate to use the term grief and um, doesn't necessarily um, mean that he's changed his mind. We know from uh, elsewhere, for example, uh, Numbers uh, 23, uh, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. So um, anywhere that we see God repenting or seeming to change his mind, we should take it in love of that and say, what is this trying to say? And in terms of regrets, I use the uh, the term, again, back to a human example, but I think it's it's appropriate at this point. Um, I might say, oh, I'm going to doing this, and yet I do it. Or I might say, oh, I really regret getting out of bed this morning, but I don't really regret going getting out of bed because I could very easily go back to bed, and yet I don't. I'm... I'm 
saying that, oh, part of me doesn't like the, the implications of me getting out of bed. Not that I, I regret my decision in its totality to, to get out of bed. We use terms like that different ways. And in the light of the rest of scripture, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say that God completely changed his mind. He said, oh, I, I, I really, truly wish I had never made man. Um, he knows the future. And if he did not want to make man, he did not have to make man. Yep. Yeah. And that, and that's really the trick, right? It's understanding these things in light of God's unchanging, immutable nature that if God really uh, was sorry or really wanted to change his mind, then we would have problems down the road for other passages of scripture that clearly say the contrary. Um, so yeah, the grief and the regret have to be understood um, from a divine perspective and not as we would regret or or be sorry right mm -hmm. that, that's and that's the trick that's the trick um oh des uh des actually commented and said something um it's sort of like when we say what are you doing to our kids and we clearly see and know it there oh yeah yeah yep yeah that's right he already went over that desiree yeah <laughs> must have been a delay there <laughs> um all, all right, right genesis 22 yes genesis 22 and i'll be honest this one um i would say would almost be the strongest uh, open theist proof text that I've encountered. Um, not that I think it actually proves open theism, but it's the most on the surface um, seems to directly imply their position. Um, Genesis 22, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the ladder, do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And even though it says angel here, I do take the angel of the Lord to be God um, himself. So this would directly apply to my position. It does seem to be implying that God didn't know something before and now does know something. Um, but I'd like to point out the, the Hebrew here, the underlying uh, word for uh, know there is yada. And as I'm sure a lot of in our audience know, Yada is the same word that underlies Adam knew his wife Eve. And we recognize that's not Adam coming to realize that his wife exists, but that means something else. Uh, so I, I looked it up, um, and this comes from uh, Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. The Hebrew root Yada, translated know or knowledge, appears almost 950 times in the Hebrew Bible. It has a wider sweep than our English word know, including perceiving, learning, understanding, willing, performing, and experiencing. Um, so there's a, there's a couple ways we could just take this um, that doesn't imply that God is learning something new, but it could be more in the sense of he's um, experiencing something and even that where i'm not speaking univocally i'm speaking in, in human terms but um he's, he's ex experiencing this truth or he's perceiving this truth not necessarily that he's learning this truth as if he did not know it before um so that is how i would interpret that i don't know if you have a different interpretation of dan no that that sounds right and i think it just goes to show that our language just uh, in English doesn't capture the nuances that you would find in the uh, Hebrew and even in the Greek. 
um, mm-hmm. that you're you're missing, unfortunately, in some ways in translation. Um, yeah. And this seems to be one of those places. Yeah, I mean, it's it's purpose. It's perfectly reasonable to translate it as no. I'm not saying it's an incorrect translation. Excuse me. It's just yeah, that- yeah. It's just when we read that we we tend to think of it as just oh, he must have come to know. Like oh, exactly. I didn't know before. Now I know. Yeah. Yeah. And then last proof text, sort of in a similar vein, Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the, the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. So you'll see the passages where God tests someone as mm-hmm. being um, brought up. So it's, oh, he didn't know. He needed to test mankind in order to know what was in them. Uh, we know from elsewhere, First um, Kings eight thirty nine. Uh, then you hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to uh, everyone according to all his ways. Heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of man. Uh, so the question. Uh, so this is saying that no, God does know the hearts of man. Um, so the way I read passages about testing is similar to how I understand. Um, uh, God knowing in uh, Genesis uh, 22, and that's he's he's perceiving it, experiencing it, and that um, the testing is not merely for God's but, uh, on the day of judgment. The the I believe that the, the testing will be shown that all know that God was just because we will see the evil of men. Men claim they knew God, but the testing of them has demonstrated that they they didn't know God. So. Um, and that, that's how I harmonize all the Bible, and I do not see um, any any issue with that harmonization whatsoever. I think it it treats scriptures uh, faithfully and uh, honors them by not allowing um, contradictions to remain. Yep, yep, and yeah, it's and again, this would be um, another place where I think. Uh, just looking at a translation on its face is not necessarily helpful, but where you would have to get deeper into the underlying, um, the underlying language. Cause this would, I think be the same sense as we find in, in Genesis 22, it's this bringing out or perception of, and in this case it's, and I guess you could say the same with Abraham cause this was Abraham being tested too. Mm-hmm. It was bringing out or bringing to light who they really were. I know now that you're doing this, I'm perceiving that you really know me. Even though obviously he already knew, but it's it's bringing it to light in in human terms based on the experience or in a human perception based on the experience of testing. Um, but God isn't gaining anything new by that. Um, so yeah, and actually that's that's very helpful because I didn't realize that before in terms of the the underlying um, Hebrew there that brings it out. So that's very helpful. But you can see as we are looking at these passages, it's. The scriptures are not just necessarily as simplistic as they might appear, and as open theists want us to think they are in terms of their um, interpretation um, on who God is. Um, so we have to be very diligent when we study the scriptures and make sure that we have our hermeneutical framework built before coming to the scriptures, or we're going to make mistakes like this. Um, open theism. So you know, to answer the question in our the title of our episode is open theism heresy or, or a misunderstanding uh, it is heretical um, it is not uh, just simply a misunderstanding that can be swept under the rug it is a completely different god 
It is not the God of the Bible. It is an idol. Um, and it must be repented of. And I hope that, you know, Chris Fisher, um, someone tells him that these things are, are wrong. And maybe, I don't know, maybe in the off chance he hears our episode, but we hope that he repents and he does, he does not believe in the God of the Bible. This is a completely different God. Um, and, and because of that, he's not worshiping the one true God of the Bible. He's worshiping an idol and he's lost. This is a fundamental of the faith. Um, and those who are listening or who may listen, um, if you are not following the God of the scriptures as found in scripture and believing in his son um, who reveals the father, then repent, uh, believe in him, rest in Christ alone for your salvation by faith and faith alone um, and embrace the cross and the work that is there for the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that comes from the cross and in Christ's perfect life to uh, bring you perfectly in, in good standing before God the Father. We, we plead with you to do that today. Um, but with that, that will close out our episode this week. Lord willing, we will be back next week. Um, thank you for joining us. This was a, a longer episode, but a, a one that uh, requires a longer discussion um, and not necessarily an easy topic to deal with, but we thank you for bearing with us. Um, but have a great rest of your holiday weekend and Lord's Day tomorrow, and we'll be back next week, Lord willing. God bless.